I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Adam Eisman. Adam is the CEO and founder of The Lloyd Group, a prominent managed service provider for small and medium-sized businesses that provide IT services like asset management, help desk support, project management, cybersecurity, IT governance, and cloud services. Under Adam's 28 years of leadership, the Lloyd Group has been named on the list of Inc. 500 and Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in America, along with many other accolades and recognitions to include employee satisfaction and corporate culture. Adam has a Bachelor of Science degree in accounting from Adelphi University and is a graduate of the Harvard Business School President's Program and the Entrepreneurs Organization MIT Birthing of Giants program. Adam is a member of YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and serves as the Learning Alliance champion. And he was also the chair of the Harvard Business School Presidents program for many years. As a side note, Adam has been a close friend for over a decade, and I have not met another CEO who has a more voracious appetite for continued learning and education than Adam. This desire to learn and improve is only superseded by his caring spirit for others and for making the world a better place. He's one of the kindest and most generous people you'll ever meet, and he has had a true impact on my life. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so let's jump right in. I have wanted to interview you for quite some time, and I'm I'm glad that you've found a little bit of time in your busy schedule uh, to be able to join us on the podcast today. But my friend, uh, I am just so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Bob. And you know, I've listened to to so many of your podcasts, and uh, it's it's great to actually see that your face and your smile while you're interviewing is exactly how I've pictured it, and oh. I can see how it uh, how it how it uh, how it encourages everybody to just open up and 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 provide such a such great stories and and interviews. Well, I tell you what, we were we were talking just a few moments ago before we got started, and I was just telling you how much fun I've had, you know, interviewing so many of our classmates and friends, and what a great uh, learning experience it's been for me. And even though I, many of our classmates, you know, I have had a friendship relationship with for over a decade. Each time that we sit down and you have a long format interview, you learn something about the person's, you know, family or business and life. And, you know, so I'm really relishing the opportunity to be able to have this time with you today and get to know you a little bit better, even though we've got a decade long uh, friendship. We've spent time with each other uh, in various locations. And, uh, but I tell you what, you have quite the impressive background. And I'd love to kind of go back. You know, I, l- I love the origin story of people and kind of going back into history and taking a look at some of the, the, the key moments in their life that kind of were inflection points along the way that help mold and craft them into um, the men, the women, the leaders that they are today and leading organizations and entrepre- their entrepreneurial journey. So as you kind of, at this stage in your life, as you look back, are there inflection points, things that you remember in your childhood or adolescence that kind of were really big pivotal points that you know helped mold and craft you and put you on the pathway to, to where you are today? Yeah, you know, Bob, it's, it's, it's funny because as, as I said, I was listening to so many of the other interviews and, and so many of the origin stories, and it's fascinating how many similarities and connecting points there are among um, our classmates. Um, and it, it's also funny uh, or interesting because we often have a view 
of somebody based on uh, the impression we get on who they are today and what it is they're doing. And I talked to uh, I talked to our mutual friend Basel quite a bit. Actually, just recently stayed with him, and he sees me as this very process oriented individual. And you and others, you know, kind of know me. Um, from the Harvard program and somebody that's, you know, really focused on academics or learning and increasing those for others. And the funny thing is, is most of those are, are either coping mechanisms or making up for a lack of those things uh, in childhood, you know, and, and I look back on that and uh, I've been very, very lucky Mm -hmm. in a number of ways. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the path was not always straight. Um, you know, I grew up in a household that was uh, that was filled with anxiety. My mother, um, as I think we've discussed, had borderline personality disorder. She still does. Wasn't diagnosed till a few years ago because they didn't really know how to diagnose it. When we were younger, it was considered to be depression and things along those lines. And she was in and out of hospitalizations. Um, lots of uh, lots of uh, trauma in the house and not a lot of stability. A lot of anxiety. And that anxiety uh, led me to not necessarily be a particular good student. I was always in good classes, um, but I never performed well, and I never took education seriously. I uh, I did not walk with my graduating class um, because I missed out of 180 days of English, which was first period. I missed about 120 of them. Wow. Uh, just because it was early and because I was out most nights partying. And uh, you can compare and contrast that with the person who uh, then kind of requires everybody to be on time and not doing email in class. Um, and, and I don't know that I, I, I was ever late. And then I went to college and, uh, and I didn't do well there either. One of the luckiest things that ever happened to me was I went to a Bruce Springsteen concert when I think it was 17 or 18, eight, probably 18, uh, with a friend. Pulled, got home, pulled up to the house, and there were two marshals outside with a bag of my things and uh, the keys to my motorcycle. And uh, my parents had kicked me out of the house. What age were you? I was 18, 18 I think. So it was like my first or se- first semester of college okay. um, where I was living at home and going to Temple University, which I was lucky that they, they took me in because the only thing that got me into college was high SAT scores. And, and the interesting thing about my SATs, and I compare and contrast this to my kids, is I never studied for them. I don't know that anybody really did at the time, but mm-hmm. I didn't. And I was at a fraternity party the night before at 17 as a, you know, as a high school senior, um, and basically rolled from the fraternity party right into taking my SATs, um, which shows you how serious, like, wow, I, I took academics at that time. And, uh, you know, that, the, the household situation at that time was pretty bad because my dad had had a stroke my senior year of high school. My mom obviously had challenges of her own. My dad had always been very distant, but this made it even tougher. So the, so the household situation wasn't good. And the solution for them, um, which ended up being very lucky for me, is, they threw, as I mentioned, they threw me out of the house. And I spent two weeks sleeping down the street behind an office building around the air conditioner unit before a girlfriend at the time's parents took me in, ended up at my grandmother's uh, for a little, about a week, got a job at McDonald's and started putting myself through school. And getting out of the household um, allowed me to develop. And I, you know, I was listening to Dean's interview um, Mm -hmm. and he talks about, you know, that the challenges and the things in life that, that affect you 
and how you change and overcome. And I found it fascinating. And you know, I was just really able to connect with him. Obviously, he's one of my closest friends, as, as I think Dean intimated in his. Um, many of us disagree on politics, religion, and other things, but we, we all agree on so many core values right. uh, about what makes a, a person a person. Um, so uh, that impacted me. And then um, I, I think so. my parents throwing me out of the house was, was, a, uh, was a huge influence in my life, um, mostly because it got me out of the house. Second, I went to visit a friend up at a small school in Long Island called Adelphi, and uh, I um, I stayed up and I transferred the next day, um, and I was able to go up the next semester. And what that did for me was it got me out of the general area, the group of friends that I'd had, the people that I'd grown up with, and and further away from my family. And, uh, you know, there I joined a fraternity. I became vice president of fraternity. I started a bunch of businesses. I had 17 fraternity brothers working for me at Valet Car Parking. I was writing computer software. This was back in the late 80s and selling it. I was doing tax returns. I had a bunch of businesses. So my entrepreneurial spirit, independence, um, and a little bit of, I, I think, my desire to impact people mm-hmm. through leadership came from that. Um, and then I think the last thing, major thing, um, that really influenced me was uh, was meeting my my wife. I uh, I was living in New York. I mean, I was living in Philadelphia and got a job offer in New York that I couldn't refuse. And I was commuting from New York from Philadelphia to New York on the train. And um, I was all go 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 go. Um, I would get up early, go to New York, work all day, come home on the train, go out till two or three in the morning. Um, to a bar or club with friends and then get back on the train. Um, and when I met Sarah, she's, and you've met Sarah, mm-hmm. um, she's dissimilar to me. Um, she's more of an introvert. Um, you know, she gets her energy from being alone as opposed to, you know, other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she gave me a reason. She gave me structure and she gave me a reason um, to come home at night and not mm-hmm. go out every night. Um, you know, I was out with, um, there was a YPOer in town the other day, and my son and I, last minute, he reached out. We drove down to Fort Lauderdale to meet him. You know, Sarah would stay home. She'll go out two or three nights a week with me, but I do with the two or three nights by myself, and then we, we obviously have our, our nights home mm-hmm. together. But she really gave me that stability. So when you look at the process that I put in place um, around my life, and and I, I, I can talk a little bit that, a lot of structure, and uh, and my life of love of learning and lifelong learning, um, most of it comes from the fact that I feel like I wasted so many years of my childhood not learning and not not doing the things, you know, just really wasted, wasted time. Mm. Um, and I feel like I have to make up for that. And a lot of the the um, process that Basel refers to and the other things comes from a need to put structure in my life because without structure, um, I'll just wander. And a few years ago, you know, I really, over a period of years, I sat down through the process of form. And I would say another, and I think we, we all talk about this, another area that deeply changed my life was in 1999 when I did my first forum training. And I walked in, I was running a five-person business. This was for YEO, not YPO at the mm-hmm. time, because we're a much smaller business. And I walked on, and the forum trainer was a guy named Mo Fadobot, who I credit with changing my life. I walked in thinking I knew everything and walked out realizing that I knew absolutely nothing. 
And for me, that is the power of forum training and the power of forum. And I spent years with my forum. I'm really trying to get some organization around my life because I'm a little bit of the, uh, you know, what is it, the red ball guy, where you see a red ball run for the red ball, you see, and I can get easily distracted and head in directions. And that goes back to that childhood and anxiety. And I need that structure to keep me focused and going in in a positive direction. And um, a number of years ago, I I sat down and uh, over a period of years, with the help of coaches, forums, and things like that, I said, okay, what are the things that really matter to me in life and the things that I want to focus on? Um, And I came up with these things that say, that I call my true north objectives. And last time I revised them, I added a sixth one, which was in uh, 2019. And anything I do these days, I try and I run through the filter of those objectives because I don't want to waste any more days, times, hours, or years because I really did for the first 20 something years of my life. I just wasted so, so much time. You know, Dean talked about the fact that um, he was this model student and model person up until he was about 20, 21. And I was the polar opposite. I was really, really lost probably until my mid twenties. Um, so, and, and if you want, I'll share what those what those uh, true north items are. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. So it, it, it's it's fascinating. So these you measure everything that you do in life now based on how they relate to this true north that you've come up with. You so uh, one of my favorite quotes, an author, uh, he's a former YPO or Jeremy Kubitschek, and he has a, a quote in one of his books. He said, to, you, you need to know yourself to lead yourself. And so it, it seems like you have discovered kind of like who you are, the things that are important to you, and, and you now have this like true north, and you measure everything off of that. Is that correct? I do. Um, and for me, the way I, I really framed the or came up with the true north was, you, you know, you've done that exercise um, where you're writing your own eulogy mm-hmm. or where what is it you would want. Um, and what I always look back on is, I'm, you know, I put myself on my deathbed on looking back on my life and what are the things that I would regret and what are the things having done, not done. Right. Or or this. And I really try and frame them on that because I really do regret. Um, I know I didn't have control over it or the power, but I really do regret so much of the first, you know, the first segment of my life. If you go back to um, Strength to Strength, the Arthur Brooks, which I think mm-hmm. you've talked about on the podcast and which has been an influence to me recently. Um, you know, you've got those 25 year segments and, uh, you know, my first you know, I, I don't know that I had that for a second, but it was just very different right. from a developmental standpoint. So, you know, I spent a lot of time on this. So the first one, uh, and, and the wording is a supportive, fun, accepting relationship with spouse. And the wording there was just really important to me, yeah. supportive, fun, and accepting, because I spent a lot of time, and I don't know if it's just me or most of us, I suspect based on the presentations I've experienced over the years, it's a lot of us, um, we marry somebody, and then we spend a lot of time trying to change them, you know, and, and a lot of times we marry them for the differences, and it's the differences in the relationship that bring so much value. Mm-hmm. And at times we forget that it's those differences that bring so much value. So for me, that accepting piece was extremely important. I love it. That's brilliant. The second was uh, instill a sense of humility and responsibility in my children. 
And, uh, you know, that goes back to, I don't know how many presentations you've sat in on, on, uh, on the challenges of raising kids today, but also the challenges for kids being YPO kids. Mm -hmm. And what do they define as success? Because what we really want for them is for them just to be happy. And it doesn't matter if they're a park ranger or a cobbler, if they're even our cobblers these days, they're pretty hard to find, um, you know, or they're an executive and you just want them to be happy mm-hmm. because I think we've learned that your business success is not necessarily happiness. Money's not necessarily happiness. We all know so many people that have had both and are, are not. Um, right. So for me, that second one is really important. The third is a transparent, deep relationship with my children. And, uh, you know, that started young. And I've seen the relationship that you have with your kids. And I, you know, I, I admire and I try to learn from that. I see the relationship. And Dean talked a lot about his relationship mm-hmm. with his kids in his interview. Um, and I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of a lot of time a lot of time with them and uh you know I admire how much he invests into that life of no regrets and that fear didn't stop me um when i was a kid i was afraid of very many things i love how uh, you and the johnsons and uh Warren, you know you talk so much about how much sports meant in your life and early on and i just didn't have any of that because i was really i had so much anxiety i was terrified of doing a lot of things and I have a you know, fear of heights. And one of the biggest things for me was I did the YPO Navy SEAL program. I did the level one and level two. And in level level one was scary enough. Um, but level two, we needed to climb up a cliff and then repel off of it, which for somebody with a fear of heights was tough. And I spent a bunch of time training for that, slowly working myself up. And then I did it. And for me, you know, that was a big deal. Uh, but now I try and stay physically active. I was at CrossFit earlier today, um, just before this interview. I try and do uh, runs and Spartans, and I try and stay physically, you know, do as much as possible and challenge myself. But I missed out on a lot of that, so um, I just don't want fear to stop me from doing anything. The fifth is achieved a state of acceptance of myself and others, and the others part is important um, as well. But I think it's it's hardest, at least for me, and I think for a lot of us to achieve a state of acceptance of ourselves. And, and who we are. And then the one I added in 2019, which I learned from a forum me um, and from some coaches that I had, um, was a balance of unplanned time with value-producing activities. Ooh, and that. what I was doing was I was so desirous not uh, 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 not to and so wanted to not waste any time because I feel like I've wasted I, I missed out on so much mm-hmm. that I overbooked myself. I schedule out vacations, but now I've learned to try and leave some unplanned time to allow things to just happen, and that took a lot long time to do, and that was uh, that was hard for me. So all of this in the ad of lifelong learning, uh, you know, the, the the passion for learning right now. Um, really just stems from stems from that background mm-hmm. um, and a desire to really try and make up uh, make up for for those those early years. I, I don't know what you do, but uh, do you do a painted picture exercise with your life or anything like that? I have not heard that specific term, so I'm wondering if I've done something similar, but it's uh, named different. But I, I'm very interested to hear what this painted exercise is. It's not a, it's not a lifeline, right? I've done the lifeline. And, no, you know, okay. no, no. So painted picture actually comes back. Um, I did uh, Vern Harnish's Birthing of Giants years ago, and uh, 
there was a uh, Brian Scudamore, um, who was a founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, was in that class with me, as were a number of other YPRs that we might all know. And um, one of the things him and uh, I think it was C.R.L. Cameron, who's now a coach, uh, came out with was this idea of you sit down, you close your eyes, and it's like a Harvard case study where you say what you want your life or your business to be like. Mm-hmm. And mine always starts out with Adam is sitting down, you know, just like a Harvard case study, so looking out the window and thinking back on the past five or ten years, whatever range I'm doing. And here, this is what the life is like. Him and the kids do this. Him and Sarah do that. The business is here. Adam has completed five, you know, really kind of describes, you know, like that first opening of a Harvard case study really just paints that picture. And the goal is to put yourself five, 10 years in the future um, and to draw right up what looking back on those five, 10 years, what they look like. And I try and do that, tying it to my true north objectives. And I filter it through. And then I create my objectives for the year, for the quarter, and the things that I want to do um, and document them based on that, whether it's date nights activities with my kids, what is it I want to learn from, uh, learn um, what areas I want to learn about, what business or personal accomplishments I want to have, how many times I want to get to the gym. And I kind of narrow that down to hit that piece, and then I just try and measure what it is I'm doing. Some people think it's obsessive and they're right, but for me, it's it's just it's it's all about having that structure not to get lost, right. and uh, and to make and, and to use uh, to 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 do as much get as much out of my time as possible. Well, I take a look at your resume and everything that you've accomplished, all the various organizations that you're a part of, the boards, the the charities, and you can just tell that you're a man who lives life intentionally and not by default. And and there's so many times that I hear people who will look at somebody like yourself with this very impressive resume, be like, oh my goodness, how in the world does this this guy accomplish that? How does he have time for all those types of things? And the only way to do it is to be intentional. And I just, I love the fact that you have realized that the, the amount of time that you have each minute each hour in the day is precious and you're going to spend it wisely, not waste it and, you know, analyze it through the lens of your true North. You, you took time to figure that out. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if some of the challenges that you had when in your youth, if you had not had that, would you be living a different life today? Because that, that, that in some respects was this inflection point where you're, you're trying to make up for that, Right. And w- without that, you're like, oh, gosh, I wish I would have had maybe a, a, a more balanced childhood. I wish I would have had a childhood of less anxiety or less stress. But because a lot of times you I think about YPO members that do will do everything they possibly can for their kids and remove all the friction points, remove all the obstacles. I've had some really deep discussions with my forum on these topics, and it's almost like removing those friction points and those obstacles and those challenges for young people in many respects can can somewhat handicap them because they they're, they're not growing the muscle memory or the strength to be able to handle the challenges of life. I like to sorry for being wordy here but when you go back and kind of take a look at your childhood do you see that as almost like a training ground? Like if you hadn't had that, maybe you wouldn't be as successful and driven and living life as intentionally today as you are. I think it contributed, you know, in some ways I was lucky to have 
had that and unlucky, right? I think there's a balance, um, and I, and and I think there's a there's an element of luck. I mean, I the there's luck that my parents threw me out of the house. There's the luck that I was able to. Um, I got a job at McDonald's, which honestly, you know, people ask, and I think was probably one of the most formative jobs I've ever had. You learn so much working in an environment like that. And it's one of the reasons I insisted that my son work at a pizza place two summers ago, and he hosted a restaurant and 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 does other things because I think those jobs really they teach you about people in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky that I went to visit a friend at Adelphi and I was lucky that I met my wife when I did um, because the challenge with that kind of childhood is I could have easily ended up in jail or dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of really stupid things yeah. that I look back on. And if my kids came 1% close to doing the things that I had done, yeah. I would be I, mortified. Be, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's a balance, you know. Like I would not encourage, yeah. I would not encourage anybody to, to 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 do that. But I think there's um, you know, there's managed friction and um, managed uh, opportunity for failure. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, we've all talked about this in in form and other times because, you know, thinking about how to create those situations for your kids is is invaluable. My friend Bernie, my dear departed friend Bernie, used to like to say, "If to hold your kids with open palms," mm. and I always loved that saying um, because you got to give them some support, but you also got to let them, you know, do things on their own. And um, yeah, I, I it definitely formed who I was. I think there were. I think I hope that. And, and if I look at the number of people. That did not look. There's a lot of people in my that actually had similar or worse childhoods mm-hmm. or experiences, mm-hmm. um, and there's numbers that a number that had much healthier, and I think uh, a lot of them all ended up in the same place. And there's people with both types of childhoods that ended up in not so good. You know, we saw Clayton Christensen mm-hmm. a f- number of years ago, and I remember him talking about uh, about the difference between him. And what was it, Jeffrey Skilling and a couple of other people, they were all part of his Harvard class. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, it's just, it's a slippery slope. It's, it's, it, everybody, they were all great people at the time. And three of his classmates ended up in jail. Right. Because one, of what it is they did. One decision, one, you know, bad, you know, decision, and it can lead you down a, ba- a path that you never recover from. Yeah, so I, I think it's a mix of luck. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it, 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 it is, you know, my son has gotten this, um, how, this he, he's been saying this phrase recently, um, and I've been laughing at it. Um, he keeps saying your network is your net worth. Yes. Um, which I think is, you know, the people you meet around, the people you surround yourself with, um, they don't need to be like you, but um, they really help influence who you are and who you become. You know, it's a culture we define around our lives. So I, I don't know if I answered your yeah. question. No, you did. And I want to talk that that's a brilliant quote by your son about your network being your net worth. I've heard uh, similar type quotes. And that's one of the things that I have always considered about you is that you're a master networker. I mean, I am astonished 
at the people that you know. And anytime that I send something out into my network and ask for help and be like, hey, I'm looking for an attorney that it specializes in this, or I'm looking for you know, an entrepreneur that has some insight in this, you're one of the very first people to respond back to me. And you've got two or three people. And I'm like, I'm just shocked every single time. And I remember one of the things that you had um, shared with me when you were, you know, kind of uh, convincing me to continue down the path in the the HBS program, and you had said, Bob, one of the, the one of the benefits is, is you are going to develop a n- not just a network of friends and acquaintances here within the United States, but globally, and they will become some of your best friends. They'll be like brothers and sisters to you. And it truly is the case. So. Are there things that, maybe just to highlight this point that you brought up your son's quote. So he's obviously getting this as a a, a young man in college. Um, What are some of the things that you've learned about building relationships and networking and how how have you built your network over time? Again, I I think you're one of the best networkers I've ever come across. Thank you. Uh, And I I think of it less as a network and more of a community. Mm Mm-hmm. We're family. And um, I think for me, you know, it's always been, and once again, I think this goes back to the childhood thing. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of looking to build a family and community. I did not have, I wasn't active in sports. I did not have a lot of steady friends growing up. It was a really unhealthy, um, like I said, really unhealthy, uh, unhealthy environment. And um, so for me, you know, building the network is really just about building that family or community that 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 I didn't have. And uh, you know, when Sarah and I started the business back in ninety-five, we did it for almost the same reason. You know, our what we call our noble purpose or what you might say mission statement is to create opportunities for people to learn, earn, and live better. And that's been it since ninety-five. And similar to that true north, we look at all the decisions that we make from a business standpoint around that. Um, and it's about building that team and community. And, uh, you know, if, if you take a look at our glass door, um, if you take a look, people always, whether they're with the company, they've left the company, um, they're always talking about that sense of community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I just try and build community in my life. And, you know, so I, I, and uh, I think people respond to that. You know, I'm of this philosophy. Uh, well, I think it was on one of your podcasts. One of your uh, uh, dean said that uh, the thing that he heard um, from um, uh, Dr. Carson Mm -hmm. um, that he learned was uh, that if you expect people to disappoint you, you'll never be disappointed, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. I may have it slightly off. And I I noted that, and I think, do I need more of that in my life? Because I have this Yiddish phrase. um, I, I say, be a mensch until you're proven a schmuck. Um, and for people that don't speak, you know, that aren't familiar with the Yiddish I grew up with, um, you know, that basically means be good to people until somebody uh, proves to you that they're not worthy of it. Um, And I would say that the majority of the time that's paid off um, in both business and in life. You know, in business, if a company's struggling and not paying us, we'll reach out try and understand why. And most of the time, it's a really good reason. And mm-hmm. I find that, you know, if you're nice to them and you help them through it during COVID or whatever the circumstances may be, um, they'll they'll remember. They'll remember that. And quite frankly, it feels better to me mm-hmm. to do good for people than it does to be, to have conflict or to, to be unhealthy. Um, there's a time for, for that piece. 
But I think, you know, for me, the, the networking or the building a community is, A, um, you know, Adam Grant wrote his book about givers and takers. Mm-hmm. Great book. Um, I brought him in to speak to uh, the Philly chapter right after that book, and I thought it was great. And there's givers and there's takers, and there's understanding that. And giving a lot helps be, being genuine with people. And uh, yeah, I, I'm diligent about it. Um, I put process around relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before Facebook, it was a lot harder to remember when everyone's birthday was, mm-hmm. but I made note of it um, when their kids were born and when their kids' birthdays were. I have former employees I still reach out to, you know, to wish their kids a happy birthday. Um, when somebody's got something going on in their life, set a tickler to reach out, you know, every few days or this or that, just to check on them. Mm-hmm. And it's not disingenuous. I genuinely care, as I think do most people, because most of us don't put process around relationships. Yeah. The busy, you know, the urgent gets takes precedence over the important. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's nothing more important than relationships and, you know, what I care about. So I don't feel like I'm being disingenuous by putting process around relationships. I think I'm actually being responsible responsible and respectful to those, to those relationships. Um, I love how you reframed my question from networking to community. And I think there's, and it's a really big difference. Like, I I think there's people that are, um, we, we have this mental image, at least I do of, the, the networker who's doing it the wrong way. They right, they show up at a business conference or a, te- you know, a tech conference and they're so interested and they want to hand out business cards and just collect business cards. And it's, it doesn't seem authentic and real. Whereas you reframed it, said, Bob, I'm interested in building community. And, I, and one of the things as I was listening to you talk and then analyzing my interactions with you over the years, uh, I, I watched you do that. You built our Harvard program into a community, a family of people who truly loved and respected each other, uh, did life with each other. Um, we, we know, I know more about the, the, the families and the children of my Harvard classmates than I do my, you know, people I went to high school with or college with, right? And it was always the, the way I saw you lead was how, how can I give? How can I support? How can I help? more so than what you are asking for in return. And I think you've, you've, you've demonstrated that in terms of building a family, just like you with your children, you know, you know the way you love them, support them. And I, I, it's almost like a similar type way in which you, you know, supported our community. But I don't know. Those are, those are some things that I think about when, when, as you were talking about community and relationships, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. This is exactly what Adam does. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, it's what I try and do. And I, I, I feel rewarded when I see that happen, when I hear about a study group that was formed at HBS, everybody's going to Panama together, mm-hmm. or they're still in touch with each other, and you see the the many relationships we met. That's when mm-hmm. I got the word. I mean, for me, um, and I think I, I, I've shared this a few times, but, uh, um, you know, what I loved doing was going around for the silly pictures on mm-hmm. Sunday night or Saturday night, it mm-hmm. ended up being, and seeing how unconnected and awkward everybody felt with each other when we tried to get them to pose. And the reason for the silly pictures was when you did the formal pictures, if you watched everybody, they're kind of like 
next to each and I'm doing a visual which right. your mm-hmm. listeners can't see but they're kind of awkward with each other you know I'm not a hugger I'm not a you know like so we tried to make the silly pictures to actually make it even break that down a little bit and make it even a little bit more awkward because then you see them on Wednesday night at the costume party where you've broken down all of those barriers in a healthy way mm-hmm. And people are super comfortable with each other. And then Thursday night, as they realize they're not going to see each other again for possibly another year, the tears and this and that. And for me, the reward was always seeing those relationships get built. Um, I think it's a lot harder with your kids. And I need to think what you said to me, though, was was interesting. The other thing is, you know, a lot of people think networking and is and it possibly is, is going into a cocktail party meeting as many people as possible. And, um, you know, my kids used to think that's what I did. And I don't know if you ever saw me at like those first year um, cocktails or mm-hmm. this or that. Where I was super uncomfortable because I don't like that speed dating. Mm-hmm. I really want to sit down with two or three people and just get to know them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny because sometimes I, I was joking with somebody the other day. Sometimes it's when people don't expect that it can get really awkward. Mm-hmm. And I start to wonder, like, am I actually coming across as creepy? Because I'm really trying to get mm-hmm. to know this person right, and right. I have to dial it back a little bit. And especially non-YPOers, because mm-hmm. they're not used to form and vulnerability, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll, you know, they'll look at it like, why is this person still talking to me? Why are they asking these questions? And, you know, you talked about my ability to connect and, uh, Learning about people and those points in their lives really allow me to visualize in my head connections as to how they might relate to other people and who I should introduce them to because it would enhance and enrich Mm -hmm. their lives. And for me, that whole thing is just, it's super rewarding. So, Well, you're obviously a master at it and I I take notes from you (laughs) any chance I get. Um, Well, let's go back. I'd like to go back in time a little bit. There's something that you said about your time in college and that when you transferred from Temple to Adelphia and you decided that you now you have a degree in accounting. I'm curious because you talked a little bit about all the very various entrepreneurial pursuits that you did there and you had all of your fraternity brothers working for you and valet parking and things like that. Did you always want to have an accounting degree or did it, how did you stumble into that? I've heard, um, I think it was one of our professors that said that accounting is the language of business and finance is the story. And so did you have this natural bent of wanting to be, go into business and you're like, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm going to get an accounting degree. So I, I understand the books and the numbers. How did you, how'd you end up there? And are you pleased with having that, um, business degree or accounting degree that that you've been able to leverage throughout your business career? Yeah. So when I was a kid, what I really wanted to be was an astrophysicist, which I would not have been good at because I do not have the patience for it. And I'm definitely not, you know, somebody could spend hours by themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I probably just gave away one of my security questions for all of my bank accounts and stuff like that. (laughs) You know, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up and what's your favorite flavor ice cream? Um, I was, Originally an engineering major at Temple, uh, which I also would have been lousy at. I think engineering is a great degree. 
Um, and uh, then I was a banking and economics major. And about a year and a half before I was set to graduate, and I gra should have graduated college in 88. I ended up graduating in 90. Um, uh, I did an internship for a friend's family, a friend who's now um, a YPO or, um, in Philly, uh, where um, I got to work with their accountants. And it was one, I think at the time they were the Big Ten and they were number 10. It was a mm -hmm. firm called Lavathol and Harworth. And I worked with this guy, John Abraham, who was the youngest account partner person ever make partner there. Wow. Um, and he took a liking to me. Um, and I had a knack for spreadsheets and things along those lines. And he took me out to dinner in his brand new red Porsche 944 and had me come into their office and really pitched me on accounting. And they, uh, they made me an offer. They said, if you change your major to accounting, we'll offer you a job, um, which I think at the time was for the team like that. I was never going to need money again, princely sum of $28,000 a year, including overtime. Wow. You know, this being 1990. And I thought, oh, this is great. I've made it. So I took 19 accounting credits in one summer. Um, became an accounting major, graduated, um, and uh, they ordered my business cards, and then they proceeded to go out of business um, because they had the SNL crisis hit. They had a lot of SNL, uh, a lot of savings and loan clients, and uh, Jim Baker was also a client of theirs. Oh wow! Um, and they went through some scandals. So the 300 partners met in somewhere, I think Houston, Texas. They had a retreat, and they voted to take the firm into bankruptcy. They were the early Anderson. If you okay. remember when uh, okay. when that happened, so um, so uh, I ended up with an accounting major um, that I didn't really. I, I used a little, I used a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and I think it was a great major from a standpoint of. Uh, it was a great major from a standpoint of uh, of uh, of of business, mm -hmm. um, but I actually interestingly encouraged my kids. Um, both to go for liberal arts degrees. Mm -hmm. um, if they didn't have something that they specifically wanted to do, because uh, in my my experience, and I don't know how you feel about this, uh, but everything I deal with is people-related, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily numbers-related. And it's easy enough to go and get those business courses or take an MBA um, but I encourage my kids to learn history, take philosophy classes, which I didn't do it, take anything to all. I mean, Philosophize This is one of my favorite podcasts. I don't know if you've ever listened to it. You're the one who got me involved in it. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're really learning, you're learning and dealing with people. Um, I had a, I had a cousin who um, went to, you know, got his MBA mm -hmm. from HBS. And smart guy, and I remember I'd go out to lunch with him a bunch in New York. He was living in New York at the time. And he said, I'm smarter than everyone at the hedge fund I work at. I produce more return than anybody at the hedge, any of my peers, but they're all advancing ahead of me. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why. And it was because he didn't really understand people. Mm -hmm. uh, he had never taken those classes. He'd always taken business and math classes. Um, and he, uh, he just, he, he, and he didn't know how to sell himself. Right. Mm -hmm. I think they've talked about that at HBS, how they don't really have a sales class. Yeah. Um, I tell people that all the time and sales is yeah. the lifeblood of business and they literally have nothing on sales. <laughs> yeah. I was just listening to a pod, uh, uh, I was one of the 
podcast. I can't remember which one it is, but um, Jill Avery was on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had her. I, I know she's taught gold. I think she's also taught the Y, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's a marketing professor, and she talked about, she just wrote an article for HBR on building your own personal brand. And she said, every year my MBA students would come up to me in my marketing class and say, "What this is great. What can you teach us about personal branding? And she said, I don't do personal branding. And she's like, I was arrogant about it because, you know, to me, that was not what this was. She goes, one day I realized that there's absolutely nothing more important than your personal brand. Um so I, I encourage my kids in undergrad to expand themselves as and anyone I talk to um, to not get an accounting degree unless they know they're going to be an accountant, mm-hmm. but to take those classes and you know I, I think but but to really focus on learning about people, learning about history, learning about economics, learning about those softer subjects mm-hmm. um, to provide value. I couldn't agree with you more on, on that. I've had the exact same conversations with my kids, and I, I'll remind them and people that I work with. One of my earliest mentors when I left the military and was getting into the uh, business sector, he said, Bob, business is super easy. I just want you to remember this one thing. Business is all about relationships. And it's, it, it is people, people, people. How do you deal with them? Um, it, how do you handle great situations when the business is going well? Uh, how do you handle difficult situations and uh, tough conversations? And so if you don't have that background of being able to deal with people in a wide range of uh, situations, and a lot of times, you know, difficult situations, it's going to be very difficult for you to navigate and do well. So I, I think that your advice to your children, uh, very similar to, to mine, is you know, learn those soft skills, learn to communicate, you know, learn how to build relationships, learn how to have conflict resolution and difficult conversations. Yeah, you know, I, I see that a lot of times young people today, and I don't like using that term, but it's easy to try to shy away from difficult conversations, difficult topics, and to be like, well, I'll hide behind a text message or an email, or maybe I'll avoid it. And that's one of the things that I'll, I've always taught my kids is uh, the thing that you're most scared of or the conversation that you are dreading, do it right away. Address it right away if you've got this feeling. But it, the, the problem never gets smaller. It only gets worse. And you actually build, you can build strong uh, long-lasting friendships by dealing with conflict or issues head-on and addressing it as opposed to trying to like kind of work around it and hopefully it's going to go away. But yeah, I think your advice is spot on. Yeah, there's two things I'd add to that. Um, I think it's relationships and there's something else that I've learned over the years. Um, it's not, it's relationships and integrity. Oh, yeah. And the interesting thing about the integrity piece um, is the most successful business people I know are people that either have consistent integrity or consistent lack of integrity right i think because you either have to be willing to you know you you're everyone knows you're trustable and that is a long slow path to success mm-hmm. or you just put yourself and success ahead of everybody else and uh, and i think we've all seen people mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. they, they they end up very successful I think they end up uh, without a lot of real relationships or friends, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of hangers on. But I Mm -hmm. think some of the most successful people I know actually struggle 
with putting integrity ahead of driven success. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to go the other way, but I think integrity is a part of it. Yeah. The other thing that I, I would add is I agree with you about addressing conflict and uncomfortable conversations quickly. Um, what I've tried to teach my kids is not to do it when the feelings are still visceral. Yeah. Right. Um, if it doesn't, it needs to be dealt with, but if it does not need to be dealt with in the next five minutes, sometimes sleeping on it, we're writing it down mm-hmm. and then actually going back and revisiting it an hour later with a goal. Or if you can't do that, do a breathing exercise for mm-hmm. a few minutes and then jump into it. Because some of the things I regret the most are conflict or conversations that I've had when I was still emotional about it. Yes, yes. And interesting, I don't know if you've tried this, but I've started using ChatGPT or BART or, mm-hmm. or, or, but mostly Chat for this as a tool for reframing things where I was emotional in a less emotional way. So mm-hmm. not giving a disingenuous, completely Chat-generated response, but presenting Chat with the writing something up and presenting Chat with the how I'm feeling and presenting Chat with the circumstances. And looking for a variation of the response. And it'll often be like, it's very similar to I would send something to someone else in my company or my wife or someone to review and read. And they'd say, come back to us and be, you're being defensive. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't recognize. And mm-hmm. I, I found that to be a great tool for AI, a great way to use AI recently. I had never thought about using ChatGPT. Uh, for that. I, I haven't done it. That, that's absolutely brilliant. So I want to, I, I use it for a lot of different things, but not, not for that particular situation. And that's, I'm going to definitely try that. And I, I agree with you. It's the dealing with those difficult conversations when you're emotional. Um, I, I don't think I've ever had an experience where I did it in the heat of the moment emotionally, where it was, um, the best result. It's usually, and I, I've learned over time, you know, you don't need to know yourself to lead yourself that I need some time and space to allow the emotion to dissipate and to try to handle the situation, the conversation with logic and intellect, right? Not emotion. <laughs> oh, com- completely. But it takes, it takes, that's part, that's partially maturity. And I think if we can encourage our kids to do that and, and learning through getting burnt, mm-hmm. you know, but if you can encourage your kids to, to learn that early on, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's invaluable. One of the, th- one of the things that um, I'm picking up on that's been invaluable to you in your life, going all the way back to the very beginning of this conversation, you highlighted some of the uh, anxiety that you had in your youth and your upbringing and still had maybe a little bit of that when you were early days of college. But oh my goodness, you find this uh, wonderful woman that you fall in love with, Sarah, and you said that she gave you uh, an excuse or a reason to stay home. And all of a sudden, as you started talking about that, your even your demeanor changed. Uh, you, you, the inflection, your voice changed a little bit. And then later on, uh, as you're talking, you're talking about you and your wife starting your business in 95 and what you two had decided as your noble purpose in your business was to help people learn, earn and live better. So she's actively she's given you this balance. She's given you this new lens upon which you look at life. She's giving you something that you didn't have in your youth. You're appreciating her differences and you're building a company with her. And then when you've come up with your true north, the thing that I took note of is number one on there was your spouse. 
or, and, and or you wanting to be a good spouse, right? And so I see this trend line of how important um, your relationship, right? You're, you're analyzing your life, how you want to be in this relationship. You're analyzing how much Sarah means to you, and she's an important part of your business. Can you talk a little bit about that? It, it seems like she's been very important going all the way back to college and oh, giving giving you yeah. balance and and so forth yeah completely um and i mean look i i think uh, one of the things i i learned early in the hard way you know your relationship with your spouse assuming intended to be is the longest and deepest relationship of your life other than perhaps a sibling right um oh, and siblings siblings are extremely important but you know you you can't choose your siblings and mm-hmm. your sibling could end up being Ted Kaczynski, yeah. you know, in which case it becomes really hard. Problematic. <laughs> Pro- problematic. And you want to be supportive, but, it, but, it, but it's, it's, it's tough. Um, so I, you know, I think, um, you know, y- y- your relationship with your kids becomes extremely important, obviously, but that's a period in time, right? And it evolves. Um, and your relationship, but your relationship with your spouse and I'm, I learned this early on, I think, through YPO, um, the importance of maintaining that and keeping that relationship going. Um, actually, I was on a Cisco advisory panel, um, and there was a guy named Joe Diodati, who was, a, God, he seemed ancient at the time, but he was probably in his like late 50s, um, sat down with me about 20 years ago, and he said, uh, told me about how many of his friends were getting divorced. Mm-hmm. because their kids had just left for college or just graduated college when they're off and the husband and wife looked at each other and they'd realized that they'd grown. Mm-hmm. They had nothing in common anymore. Um, and he says, thank God my wife likes golf because otherwise we'd be divorced because that's the only thing we had in common when our kids finally left the house and we were able to reconnect and start to rebuild our relationship based on that. Um, and he encouraged me to start to find things a, make date nights with my wife, mm-hmm. treat that relationship, um, you know, put process around that relationship, mm-hmm. similar to the way you put process around, uh, I put process right. around the other relationships. Um, and uh, I, I wanted that to be a lifelong mm-hmm. relationship um, and it to continue to, continue to grow and evolve. Um, and uh, for me, that meant, doing things together, um, not just with the kids, and being intentional about keeping that relationship going. Um, and, and I think I'm answering, uh, I'm answering your question. So, how, how has she made you a better man? I, yeah, I, I think so. It, 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 yes, I, it, it definitely made me, you know, I think one of the things that, um, that I strive to is to, con- I, uh, I did this, I'm, I'm going to diverge for one second here. Yeah good at this and you'll bring me back because I've seen you do with so many people. <laughs> but I did this, uh, I did this um, program at the Pittsburgh Pirates at Pirate City mm-hmm. a number of years ago. I don't know if you ever met, did you ever meet Gary Denham? I don't believe so. But Gary was one of the Navy SEALs who, uh, who was part of the cadre for the Navy SEAL program. Amazing guy, 23 years in the SEALs, um, 13 of those on SEAL Team 6. Um, and then when I met him, he was 
training sales. And he did. He came into our company, talked a bunch of times, but a really good guy. But he invited me down. He was doing some work with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he invited me down as a representative business. They were doing a weekend on culture and talent. And it was me. It was people from Delta Force, people from the SEAL teams, people from the Navy, Army, people from the Olympic team, people from the NFL, people from the Philadelphia Eagles, people from all of these different. And there, I think I was, at the time, the only business person they had there. Um, but one of the things that I took out of that, which was just absolutely wonderful, was um, the person from the Pirates talked about how their mission originally was winning games. And they said, we sat down and we took a look and we said, 99% of the people that we put through Pirate City, you know, their camp, will never spend a minute on a professional baseball diamond. They'll make the minors. They may they may go on the field teams. They may just go back home. So the only thing we can do with this is to turn them into is our real mission is turning boys into men, make them better parents, make them better partners, make them better people, and send them home as better human beings. Um, and for me, I still get chills like when I hear that because. Um, you know, I think that's what we did at the Harvard program. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we do in YPO. I think that's our goal in business. It's our goal in life is to help other people become better human beings from that standpoint. Um, and uh, it, it, bringing that back to marriage, because you brought that out, um, yeah, I think building that, building that relationship um, has led to me being a healthier person. And I think the tools for that, um, for me, have been great relationships with other people that are not afraid to call me on my crap mm -hmm. um, and forum because my forum mates are not afraid to call me on my crap. Um, and I don't know how many presentations you've done um, about Brandy. I mean, where you've walked in and you're just like, I, I, I've done this about Sarah and mm -hmm. Brandy. I apologize because I'm not making any assumptions <laughs> here. I, lo I love you to death. Uh, but I, I've walked in and I've been like, my wife, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I'm giving a presentation only to realize at the end that I am the person who is the problem or the things that I'm objecting that are driving me nuts are actually the things that the majority of the time I value the most. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's that reality check. Um, and investing that time and building that relationship and having that relationship, because my kids are going to be completely, not completely gone, but they're going to hopefully be independent. And uh, and and if they're not, um, our relationship even needs to be stronger because we'll be taking care of somebody for mm -hmm. the balance of our lives. And that's, you know, that's hard. So, Bob, I'm sorry if I danced around that a little bit. I I hope I answered no, what you give you what you're looking for and dig deeper if you need to. I want you to go wherever you want to go. I mean, all of that was extremely insightful, and uh, I, I agree with it. I remember um, going back to that that mentor I, I told you about a few moments ago. Another one of his quotes that I'll always remember. Uh, he was sharing with me one day. It's like you know, as you're growing up in business, you're going to be you know making investments, and you're doing this, doing that, and you're you're kind of you know looking for ways in which you can ensure against bad outcomes in the future. And he said, Bob, can I? give you some advice on how you can avoid a 50% bear market. Guaranteed, you can avoid a 50% bear market. I was like, ah, absolutely, I want that advice. He goes, invest in your wife. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah, and it was, but 
you know, from a, f- a financial sense, obviously that makes sense. But uh, I'll, sh- I'll share with you that, you know, my, my relationship with Brandy over the years is it, like, not only has she been, you know, by my side um, f- from, you know, my entire career, but I mean, she has had such an impact on how I view the world, um, how I process. I mean, it's, it, we, we've grown together. So it's hands down the most important relationship in my life. And, uh, you know, it takes, it takes, um, time it takes investment. And I, when I see there's people that I see that I really admire and respect and they, I've tried to emulate their life and I see that they, are in the in the midst of the busy seasons of life, they're really investing in their marriage or investing in their spouse, and um, it makes a, I think a huge difference. And I, I you know, I, I just saw that from from you previously as we've you know been together, but also even today as we you were talking, you just mentioned Sarah at multiple points, and I was like, you know, it's it's obvious that she has had a, a really important impact on on your life and on, on your business. And I, I love going back to that noble purpose that you guys came up with that you want to help people. Uh, I I think I wrote this down correctly, learn, earn, and live better. I'll absolutely love that. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about learning. Let's segue into, you know, you being a lifelong learner. I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about it, right? The importance of being um, vulnerable and, um, but tell me, Anything you'd like to share about your your journey with uh, Harvard Business School and the leadership roles that you've had there? And I think one of the things that I have really relished about that program is the diversity and the diversity of opinion. I I don't think I fully understood how impactful that was going to be in my life. And then over the years, as we've been able to sit down in private settings uh, and talk with people, whether we were, we had issues on the Arab Spring, right? It seems like every single major global event or cultural event that's been going on, we've been able to close doors and in a very private, vulnerable, transparent, and authentic way, have people with wide-ranging opinions, religious backgrounds, um, you know, cultural backgrounds come together and be able to share in a, I, I almost hate to use this word safe space because that can mean so many different things in different circles, but it was a, a time of people being able to come together and talk about difficult subjects and, and, and topics. And it was, it was so comforting to know that you could have these kind of conversations and it wasn't going to spiral out of control. And, um, but you, you could just throw everything on the table. And I watched you lead many of these in a very artful way. And I, I would say some of the greatest education and learnings that I had were in those settings. And I just really appreciate you being a, uh, a conduit um, or, uh, you know, the person who kind of helped make that happen. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I, you know, I think it was overall, um, I, I think it was where I brought uh, something was bringing everybody together and maybe crafting that. The, a little bit of the culture, but, um, you know, the, a, a lot of people like Brad and Richard Phillips mm-hmm. and you know, Brad Keith, Richard Phillips, and some of those guys were, they're masterful at, uh, at really moderating those conversations. Mm-hmm. And I, I try and learn from the other person who I, I love learning from just a quick aside was Larry Summers when we had him in. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever realize uh, watching? I learned less from him about economics because he's way too smart and I didn't understand and more about being 
on a panel or interviewed um, or even just speaking, one of the things I learned from I saw is every time, no matter how dumb the question was, he gave it an answer that didn't make the person feel dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it was right, he paused smart as could be. I know that the answer an answer was popping into his head as people were talking. Right. I know we both get that. We're ready to answer before we even heard the full sentence. And as smart as he was in knowing that answer, he would literally, he gave one of some of the slowest responses of anybody I've ever seen. He took that 30 seconds, right, mm-hmm. before the pause and brought it back. Um, I just, I, I wanted, because you were talking about learning from people, and I, I try and learn from so many people at the HBS program mm-hmm. and other programs that that just do things, um, I, I think, in a way that I, I admire. What I I think to to answer your question to go back one of the things that's very different about the HBS program and the executive programs at YPO than a YPO event is when you go to a YPO event or any kind of event you're generally going focused completely on yourself. It's what am I doing there? What am I going to get out of this program, etc. Um, the executive programs are all about you going and enhancing your peers' experience. And if you enhance your peers' experience, you'll get increased value. And if you think about it, the selection process, who comes back, all of the rules, you know, the the curbs we put in place and how I are designed for that. You're not late to class. Why? Because you interrupt coming into the class late interrupts the other person's experience, creates an acceptable outcome that could encourage other people to prioritize things that aren't as important. You're not being on email during that. Your participation in forum, your preparation. It's not so much about you getting the most out of it, though you end up resulting to. It's about making sure that your peer gets the most out of it. So you start out with this natural or encouraging servant leadership in people all around. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the second piece of that is, you know, we is um, is we really tried to recruit a lot of different people. So there was diversity mm-hmm. of opinion. Um, women in not women. You know, we increased the number of women, I think, from like seven when I started to 50. Mm-hmm. When um, when uh, Rima took over the program, um, we diversified the leadership. Um, we had diversified the personalities in leadership, um, you know, really to create a, a bunch of different a, a a better overall experience. Um, and we really, uh, you know, through the forum process and building it, I remember, and I think Mark talked about the retreat we did in New York, um, at the leadership level alone, um, we encouraged a sense of vulnerability um, that really, that, that just fed its way through throughout the program. Um, Dean and I led a program years ago, um, which was a two-day program, um, and we said that the we we were at the uh, we were at the um, uh, program development seminar, and uh, we came up with the three things for that program. And I actually took that lesson for any program, including YPO. The three things you want to do in any event program um, is um, a you want to connect people, mm-hmm. right? That's important. Number two, you want to get people committed. You want to give them something that they can take home, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and execute on. But the third thing you want to do, and YPO insisted we brand this as creativity, but I like to call it getting them uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. is you want to make them slightly uncomfortable. You want to take them out of their day-to-day. You want to take them out of 
the box that they live in. Um, and for me, you know, the rally cases mm-hmm. or something like that, or bringing David Moss in, or Frank did something, the, uh, the gold program this year was phenomenal. He did a space day. And we brought in somebody from MIT. We brought in a former astronaut. We brought in a professor from Harvard. And we learned all about space, what's happening in space, and what the next 20 years in space are going to look like. And it blew blew me and I think 90% of the other people away. And it was just, it was a wonderful day because these are things we don't think about, but they're on the news. And they're things we can think about for our kids. And I think what led to creating that sense of community and those the the um those amazing experiences was first that culture of you're there not for yourself you're there for everyone else mm-hmm. the willingness to make yourself vulnerability vulnerable um and people seeing the value of becoming uncomfortable mm-hmm. um i i don't know um my my in-laws um you know all they do is watch fox news mm-hmm. right they live and breathe Fox News. I mean, it drives my kids who are a little bit more liberal mm-hmm. nuts. And the thing is, um, they watch, and I love my in-laws do that, but they watch Fox News and they get sound bites. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time they came to stay at the beach with us. And um, my son, who was little at the time, was walks out and he goes, Dad, everyone wants to kill Obama. I'm like, where the heck did you get that? He goes, oh, I was just watching the news with Papa. And it was basically so anti Obama at the time, but, you know, for a seven-year-old or whatever he was, Mm -hmm. that's, that's how he took it. And, um, I took my in-laws to Scotland to visit Avery at school and I tried to get them watching BBC and Al Jazeera Mm -hmm. because it just presents such a different outlook Mm -hmm. on everything that you're used to. And I think we tried to do the same thing. Like to me, the culture that we created at HBS was listening to it was encouraging people to listen to a diversity of podcasts to get away from the soundbite world in which we live Mm -hmm. um, and to truly hear different opinions. And I think over the years, the team just did a really great job uh, with it. I mean, look at some of my closest, I look at my closest friends from the program and Mm -hmm. we could not be more different um, politically, religiously, Mm -hmm. but or in a number of ways. I mean, and they listen to very different news channels and vote for very different people than I would. But each and any one of them, um, if something were to happen to me, I would rather they raise my kids mm-hmm. than anybody else in the world. Because I know their core values. Um, I know the respect they have for different opinions. And I know the love that they have in their hearts. And I think that's what the program did. It, I, I agree with you. I, the The thing that I really relished was i mean if you sit back and just look at the world through the lens of mainstream media you could easily craft a narrative that we are extremely divided extremely different the world's on fire and there's just hatred and animosity all across the globe with almost no commonality and that in my experience is a completely false narrative because then you show up at places like HBS and you have this melting pot of um, completely different individuals, backgrounds, uh, cultures, um, religious experiences. 
And you, you quickly realize that when you're in those environments that you actually have so much more in common then you have differences and that what you see on the media is so often just a com completely false, completely made up. Right. Um, and and th those have been my experiences. Right. And uh, that is one of the things that I have so enjoyed about the program and your uh, comments to me years ago was spot on just being able to build friendships with people all across the globe, which is one of the reasons why I absolutely loved interviewing Fadim, you know, just a week or so ago. I mean, he, we're having an interview just like this and he's in Moscow and we're talking about what's going on right now in Moscow and Russia. And he's got family in the Ukraine, um, you know, talking with Richie about things that are happening in, in Lebanon, in the Middle East and things that are going on in Saudi Arabia and uh, Dubai. I just, I, it's one of the things that I've really been trying to get my kids to broaden the, the lenses upon which they're viewing the world and building relationships with people around the globe so that they're not getting sound bites from uh, state-controlled media. Because <laughs> even here in the U.S., I think it's state-controlled media. And it's like, it's like you, can't, you cannot hear anything that's on the news or the radio and just take it at face value. It's, it, it, it's being spun because of somebody's political agenda or the narrative that they're trying to push, do a little bit of a, a deep dive and, and due diligence to make sure you're getting to the truth. Yeah, I think Michael Porter's dead on with how the media contributes to the issue. Um, and if you haven't listened to that, I think it was a Freakonomics podcast mm -hmm. where they interviewed him on that or the article he did for HBR. Uh, I think it was HBR. But for somewhere just on it was... Um, was 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 fascinating. Um, one of the things I enjoy most in YPO is my JAMA form, which is a Jewish, Arab, Muslim, American form that Bobby Sager, I think, started 20, some, uh, 20 something years ago. Wow. Um, and uh, it's it's great. I am I am the official atheist in the group, um, which has had the diversity of opinion that I bring. Um, but it's really interesting because you have these people that, and I remember Bobby's daughter's wedding, like uh, pretty much a good part of the forum was there. And you've got Palestinians, you've got people whose kids are serving in the Israeli army. You've got all of these, mm -hmm. and it's a diverse set of opinion. And I want, you know, people bring up these things from the news or things that are happening and their opinion on the reasons behind them are so different, but they're, view on it is completely colored by the history they were given as they were growing up. And in all both cases, the histories happen, but it's the lens on that history. And the reality is somewhere in between those two. But, you know, we, we grow up being taught something, taught something, taught something, and it's directed the U.S. school system, whatever maybe, all of it is to some, you know, they say it's written by the winners to some of it, it, to some extent it's all propaganda, right? You mean, you've got to look at different views. I remember when we went to Istanbul, Sarah and I, for the first time, and Sarah was a design, um, uh, design and art major, and she learned a lot of art history. And the things we were looking at in Istanbul, she's like, oh, my God, I never learned about any of this art. I never learned about anything from the Middle East. It was all Western, right? And we don't teach our kids that piece, that history, and allow them to develop their... And it, it, it's a shame because I think it causes a lot of conflict. And one of the things I think the Harvard program does in YPO in general, and I wish more people could experience this, um, is it opens your eyes to those 
it opens your eyes to those viewpoints. Yeah. Um, as long as you're willing to listen. Well, you you and I have been talking a lot about our experience in YPO, and you you've shared uh, some of the, your your favorite memories and experiences, the various mentors, the ways in which uh, you have been able to see the world through different lenses. And as I look on your resume, you have you you were a part of Vistage for six years. It looks like uh, EO for nine years and YPO. How many years have you now been a part of YPO? So you've you. 20 plus am i am you been i think it's about 16 it's 16? about i think i joined in 2007 okay all right so you and i are about the same the same time frame there in uh in ypo so you've you've been a part of three uh organizations similar but different can you can you give a little analysis of your experiences with all three or you know it's interesting that you've not, not many people have participated in all three of those organizations. Yeah, so we started out, I started out in EO, and in many ways, it's very similar to YPO. I mean, it was life-changing, mm-hmm. right? I learned form there. I sort of did the ladders there. I turned birthing of, I attended Birthing of Giants, which was their version of the Harvard program. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount. And I still have great friends in EO. The challenge with EO um, for me was that my business started growing. It's like when you're in a forum and all of a sudden you're the oldest person in the forum. Everybody's kind of learning from your experiences. Mm-hmm. I love being around younger people because, you know, the, the thing I like about having younger people in the forum or um, in Florida, we actually have a thing in our chapter called Wisdom Groups, which is brilliant, where it's four YPRers and four gold members. Um, and you get together three or four times a year for like a forum. And it's great because what I found as I get older is the things I look at as threats, younger people are looking at as opportunities. And when we're in forum, you talk, we talked about that echo chamber of news and being around people that are just like you. Um, when you're in forum and everybody's in the same stage of life, for the most part, you tend to all look at things the same way. And as we get older, we're trying to prevent, protect what we have rather than build. Yeah. And uh, so I love being around younger people. And I want to get that in because I think it it, it, it reframes how I look at things. But EO, the, the, we, we left EO because um, we ended up being one of the larger businesses and I really needed to be talking to people that could help me mm-hmm. grow. And I did Vistage for a period of time during that, and Vistage had its pl- has pluses. I still have a ton of friends from um, when I was in Vistage. Vistage, because it's a money make for profit um, entity, mm-hmm. um, and the chairs are incentivized based on the number of people that they add. At mm-hmm. least that's how it was at the time. Unless you have a chair that cares more about the quality of their group and is willing to take the time to build that while sacrificing financially to get to that point, mm-hmm. you can end up in a group that's that, that does not deliver what you're used to. What okay. was great about it was um, you had an educational resource for half a day, mm-hmm. every meeting. The challenge I ran into that was after five years, I'd seen the majority of the resources, right. and there weren't necessarily a lot of new ones. I was going through. So for me, Vistage was great. It was highly developmental. We actually used Vistage a lot to develop team members. So when we recognized star players, 
in, the, in Lloyd, or my, the mm-hmm. company, um, we would enroll them in Vistage Key Associate Groups um, because it gave them a place to go and learn because they got those educational resources. It gave them an opportunity to learn about other industries and other businesses and other roles because they may be in service delivery and they're now sitting down with a controller or this or that. And it also gave them a place to go and bitch about me. <laughs> um, that was safe. Healthy, yeah. Right? And you know, it, it's like the same thing in form. It was healthy for them to go and have a place to outlet. And it was also healthy for them to hear other people bitch about the people that they work for or work with mm-hmm. because they're like, wow, you know, like, okay, it's not just me. Um, so Vistage was great developmentally from the time we were probably – I don't know, 20 people up to about 50 people mm-hmm. for other organizations larger. The key groups are invaluable. I think they're a great creation. Um, I'm in a peer group now for my industry. I've been in since 2002. One of the great ways in which they evolved that was they now have a second group that's not for the owners of the organization. There's one for the sales leaders. There's one for the operations leaders. There's one for the finance leaders. And they go and get to share with their peers. Mm-hmm. And work together. So I think um, all of these organizations where they offer peer, you know, the ability yeah. for your team to be involved is great. I'd encourage YPO to do more of that. Okay. And then YPO, um, I think, is just shipping transformational. In many ways, it's like EO around vulnerability. Um, but the businesses are larger. And uh, if you're looking to grow a business, it, for me, was more a more global experience. Um, I you know... I've learned from people like, you know, Jay Meta and other people that just, you know, about life and about imagine my business and myself being larger than I ever imagined or having more opportunity than I ever imagined. And YPO, I think, has just broadened my horizons. Uh, YEO opened my eyes um, to my own, opened my eyes to, um, to my own issues and how I was fractured as mm-hmm. a human being. Mm-hmm. I think both my wife and my, your kid, my wife and my kids, you know, I think one of the biggest things we can realize is how fractured we all are mm-hmm. and accept ourselves for that. And I think they were key in that. Um, and I think YEO helped me to really understand that through form Vistage, uh, just to help to educate me as a business person mm-hmm. um, and YPO really, um, I think continued to help make me a better person. That's those are the three things I think I would. What a perfect summary of how all three of those organizations impacted your life and helped you uh, t- uh, to get you to the position that you are today. And the position that you're in today is you've been the CEO of Lloyd Group since 1995. Um, you've had four successful acquisitions. You've diversified your solutions. You've evolved your technology. You're one of the largest managed service providers focused on small, medium-sized business market. You do help desk, um, project management, security, cloud services. I mean, so you've had this story arc of you uh, growing your company. I mean, to where you are at the at this moment, you've been ranked in the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies uh, multiple years. You've been ranked in the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies multiple years. You've been named best places to work in New York City. And so all, all of this that you've been accomplishing in business has been parallel path with your intense desire to live life intentionally and by design 
um, w- with your true north. And uh, so w- where you are today, I'd love to get a little bit, maybe just kind of um, some of your insights, right? What, what, what do you see as you're sitting in the position that you are today? What are some of the things that you're studying? What are some of the things that you're interested in? Uh, do you have any economic insights that you feel are uh, from your learnings with friends, associates, your peer groups? I mean, there's so many questions right now in the economy. I mean, I, you hear economists are like, hey, we need to be prepared for hyperinflation. And then the next day, the exact same economist is like, no, it's deep deflation. And it's just it's it's really hard to find true signal in all of the noise. Um, what are the things that interest you that you're studying and what insights might you have in the midst of all of this? Happy to share. Before I do, just uh, you, um, you talked about load for a second. Yeah. Um, the one thing I wanted to share because I think it, it's important to us is what we did instead of focusing on building a business, we focused on building a community, very similar to what we did at HBS, right? So financial metrics are important, but the things we look at these days are before financial metrics are our glass door scores, mm-hmm. our internal NPS. And I think too many companies just don't do that. It's bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. And I think the success we have um, was through building a team that was collaborative, similar to the way we built a team at HBS, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was not just one person leading it, it was a group, and um, there was a lot. There, there was a lot of alignment. You know, we 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 sought alignment, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, that that the company's gotten to where it is, and HBS got to where it is, is that focus on on community business as community, right? Mm-hmm. What is the responsibility of business? And to me, the responsibility of business is to create jobs, to create opportunities for people to learn, learn, and live better, and to build community for them. Um, you know, obviously, um, there's a lot of talk right now around AI. I was mm-hmm. just listening to um, this morning on my way into uh, to the office here from the gym. I was listening to a, a great podcast I recommend called The AI Breakdown, which basically they give daily news on what's going on in AI. And super fascinating, right? Is it going to drive productivity? Is it not? So right now, we're seeing a lot of buzz around AI. We're seeing a lot of buzz around security in the industry. And AI impacting security is it going to put us more at risk or not at risk Mm -hmm. um is ai going to make us more productive or less productive we just launched in the company um a great idea contest where we're encouraging every single person to go out and develop ways that we can use ai to make our business more productive our days more productive our clients days more productive and then everybody in the company is going to vote on that as to which was the most impactful same thing around security risks you know this is too big a topic right now for it to just be owned at the ceo level or even at the leadership team level and a lot of it's being done uh, there's a lot of uh, what we used to call guerrilla it but those types of things happening at um you know, throughout your organization unintentionally. Mm -hmm. So why not put process and structure around that? So I would highly encourage um, any of your listeners within their organizations and within their families to do the same thing. Encourage the kids to go out and say how we could be using it how, uh, you know, how they, we could be using it in within our family, how we could be using it mm-hmm. um, within our business. From an economic standpoint, um, we are seeing some clients uh, doing very well because conditions right now are mm-hmm. supportive, but we're also seeing clients that are suffering mm-hmm. and reducing people. So it's, it's, it's extremely mixed by industry. 
uh, and I'm not quite sure where it's going. Um, we're being a little more conservative in our outlook, but typical to what uh, to, to what we learned at HBS, um, we're looking to uh, invest in where we think there's opportunities yeah. and not cut or be conservative across the lines. We're just looking to be smart about where we're going and you know really thoughtful about it. I think it's, it, 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 what we're also seeing out there, what I'm seeing and I'm learning a lot of is there's so many new tools out there. Um, I was at uh, I was at dinner the other night with a YPR who was in from out of town, and they told me about uh, this new solution that they're employing in the business called Crystal Nose. Have you seen this? No, I haven't even heard of it. Crystal Crystal Nose is an application that goes out and scours the internet for information about a sales prospect of yours or a client. Um, I think you could probably even use it. We talked about using this for people you were looking to hire. And based on the data it finds about them through LinkedIn profiles, this and that, it establishes a disk profile. And then based on that disk profile, it helps you to guide the conversation with them to be most effective. Wow. So think about it. You're calling a sales prospect. You've never spoken to this person, and you have a forecast just with some level of accuracy of their disk profile. Here are the questions to ask. Here's how to put those questions. Right? So we start talking about what we can be doing in using AI chat or this or that. You know, if you're interviewing a prospective employee now, and you're able to do something like that, where you're able to establish without even giving them a disk profile information, and you're then able to use chat or something like that mm-hmm. to help say, okay, based on this person, based on what I'm looking, here's what the profile of the perfect somebody who's super successful in that role looks like. What are some questions I can ask them? Right. So I'm seeing some people that are being innovative, jumping the curve, and starting to use tools, mm-hmm. these tools for things like that. We looked at a really cool application um, for our industry where it was reviewing our help desk uh, ticket information, um, looking, associating it with client contracts, looking at the set, taking sentiment based on the emails they're sending in and if they were calling in, what their voice sounded like, comparing that against prior sentiment. Taking a look at the length of the contract and then creating personas for each client. And it'll let you know whether or not you need to escalate this particular issue to a higher level person, even if the issue didn't require it technically, Mm -hmm. whether or not that person was trending towards a risk of leaving, whether or not they were a happy client, et cetera. These are the things, you know, I think it's, um, uh, if you saw the A360, you know, they said in 10 years, you'll either be using AI or you won't be in business. But these are the things right now that I'm seeing that people, innovative people are starting to adopt and use and play around with. Um, and we're starting to use and play around with um, in the organization that I think will bring tremendous value. And I think no matter what the economy does over the next year or two, whatever happens politically, mm-hmm. if you're the person in the firm that's using these tools first and more effectively for really innovative ways, you're going to do really well. And that's ha- kind of how we're looking at it. Uh, do you have any insight uh, predictions, if you will, on areas of the economy, the uh, specifically job market that you're like, man, Bob, I, just from where I'm sitting, it looks like AI is really going to be disruptive uh, to these job sectors. Um, and I remember my conversation with Jess' mom, and she's extremely excited about the opportunities of AI and how it is going to advance society and open up new doors of opportunity and offer new jobs. 
there's also thought leaders as gifted as her who also see the the inverse of that and say, well, yeah, what Jess has to say is true, but it also could have the, these are the areas where we see it's going to be very disruptive in the short and long term. Do you have any predictions on the those particular areas, areas where it's going to be very beneficial and very yeah. negative? So I'm doing my Larry Summers pause right now. I love the look at you. I had an answer formulated, and uh, and and I don't know that I want to get. Um, look, I I uh, I've read some contract phases phrases. Um, we were negotiating a contract uh, with one of our renegotiating with our vendors, and chat came back to me with really great responses. Um, I could then run them by my attorney just to be safe, but it really cut down on the number of the amount of time yeah. uh, my attorney was going to bill me. So I think um, it's going to change how attorneys work. I don't think it's going to get, you know, get rid of that industry. Same thing with accountants and analysts. So I think, uh, I, I think it's going to create a ton of new jobs. I think it's going to make a lot of people very, a lot more productive. But I think if you're a white collar worker who is, uh, who is basically, who is basically, you know, just taking raw data or pulling raw data and putting it together for somebody else to look at and render an opinion, it's gonna it it's it's gonna make the necessity for your role a lot. But honestly, like those roles are not not fun. Um, but I think it's interesting because I think the two things that are going to do that are not just AI but NFTs, right? Um, because one of the things that NFTs the uh, and the ability to have these keychains is going to do is really of smart transactions. And when you take AI and smart transactions, the number of people we have in our finance team that are processing bill invoices, checking to make sure invoices are correct, placing purchase orders and things like that are going to go down dramatically. They're going to be completely automated in a trust in a way that's that that's that's trusted mm -hmm. because AI gives you the ability to automate and think and pull those things, but blockchain and NFTs gives you the ability to make sure that what's actually happening is something that you can trust right. and do. So between those two, I think that entire area of work mm -hmm. is going to is going to shift dramatically. Wow. Um, the question is when you take those resources and you shift them somewhere else and you find new roles for them, mm -hmm. where they're right. then what you really do is you expand the business, you expand the economy. Look, we brought up, um, it's happening in Saudi now, um, you know, bringing women into into the economy. But, you know, in the 70s, I remember uh, fear of, you know, machines, robots replacing people on the factory floor mm -hmm. and the fear of women coming into the workplace and it creating fewer jobs for men because women would be taking men's jobs. It didn't do that. It expanded the economy right. and created new jobs because you now had more people being productive. Right. You had two income households that were able to consume more. You mm -hmm. had a need for daycare and for other things. Right. These things don't destroy. They, they disrupt it for a period of time. Um, there was a great book. I wish I could remember the name on this. I read a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, they disrupt for a period of time. But in the long run, they all create more jobs and more opportunity. Those people will retrain. What I'm more worried about are the people with who went to, for, to school for accounting degrees or comp sci degrees and didn't necessarily get those liberal arts backgrounds. Because to our friend Boris's point, 
if the speed was every five years, what you know now depreciates, mm-hmm. the speed is now every two to three years. Yeah. People who are, I'm more concerned about people that are not lifelong learners, the people who aren't subscribing to Masterclass, who aren't subscribing to Coursera, who aren't doing these things online and continuing to evolve, that aren't playing with ChatGPT at home. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that are going to become irrelevant and have a hard time getting jobs. Yes. The people that, those are the people that are, you know, the people that don't know how to, to talk to other people. They're going to be the ones that are going to become, to some extent, irrelevant. Did I answer your question, Bob? Absolutely. And it just, it's interesting that you used the word irrelevant multiple times there as you were kind of uh, articulating your, your viewpoint. And I, it makes me remember... Uh, General Shinseki, uh, Army four-star general, who back in the late 90s, it was right at the start of um, the global war on terrorism, he was put in charge of modernizing and revamping uh, the U.S. Army. And one of his famous quotes that he said is, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And I mean, we are in a um, we're in a world of everything is changing so rapidly. And it, it, to, to your point, I you're spot on. I mean, folks have got to be plugged in. I remember what was, I forget which professor it was, but you're like, you've got to be coming back to these executive programs um, before you used to do it because you wanted to have some insight in the world to be able to steer your business. Today, you've got to do it just so you can, you know, survive. And if you, right. Um, I think it was, it wasn't it this past year? I was up there for graduation this past year and I sat in in a couple classes and I think that was a quote on one of those. I forget who it was, but um, you've got to be, we've got to be lifelong learners. We've got to be plugged in. We've got to be teaching our kids that what they learn in college, great. Um, that, that's nice data. But really what college is all about is helping you understand how the world works, uh, creating an appetite for learning, understanding how to learn and continue that through a lifelong process like you've been demonstrating. And by the way, the military can be a great place for that also. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think more kids should not be going to college, but should be going to the military and then probably do it like or some sort of level of service. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a regret of of mine. And and and, and, and the it, 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 but though there are great institutions that we have that encourage you to be learners and to expand yourself and develop as 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 individuals and as people. And uh, the other the thing I would add to what you said is you need to not only be doing it for yourself, but you need to build an organization that encourages people to do that. You know, our three core values are be human, be accountable, and be better. Um, and we hire for empathy, not for technical. And it's easy because we call them the three Bs, right? Real easy to remember. Too many companies have too many core values that are and it's about and we hire for being human i tell people during orientation no one's ever been fired at lewd for making a mistake but they've definitely been fired for hiding one and i talk about the stories where i had to call a client to talk about something stupid that we did that we didn't possibly even need to tell them about because they never would have known but it's who we are um and the last is be better and i show boris is two by two to every new Lydian, um with where the y-axis is cultural fit and the x-axis is skills. And I say our job from a hiring standpoint is to hire people above the x-axis to make sure they're a cultural fit. And that means those three core values. And then I said our job is to hire either B players or A players. And if they're A players, it's to turn them into B players. And if it's B players, it's to make them into A. 
Because if you're an A player today and you're still an A player in three years, we're not pushing you hard enough because the things around us in our industry change. And the things you know today, if they're still making you an A player three years from now, then we're not moving forward as an organization. And if we're promoting you and you're becoming a manager or you're becoming you know, whatever it might be, you're going to go from being an A player to a B player. And our job is to make you into a B player, then help you to become an A player again and raise your hand if work is too easy, like if the job's too easy because we're not pushing enough. And raise and don't be afraid to raise your hand if you feel like in your new role you're struggling because we expect you to, mm-hmm. and our job is to help you. And I think more companies need to be hiring people that are focusing on making lifelong learning a part of their core values and their mission. I mean, look at our mission, learn, earn, and live better, right? right? Better lives come through learning, which creates better earning, which gives you the freedom to be able to do the things you want in life and live and enjoy. And, you know, one of the challenges I have with the Harvard program is we go to it, we come back, everybody rolls their eyes, um, and uh, you cannot communicate the value of Bugs Berger the way that Ryan Buell can. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really, really hard. People just don't get it. We need to be investing in our teams learning like we learn and not just ourselves. And that's that's my take on it. So well said. I. I've got a couple more questions for you, but I want to take a pause here just for a second and ask you on this. A few moments ago, you um, you highlighted, you said, I like being around younger people. And, uh, and, and it was that forum group that you have down there in Florida. And you said something along the lines as, as you get older, you start to see things not as opportunities, but as a threat. Okay. And it, as soon as you said that, I was thinking about my my current situation where I've, I've noticed that, right? There's, whether it's maybe a business partner who is in a completely different stage of life where they're more on the retirement spectrum and they're like, I just, I want to protect net worth and they're not looking to maybe change or develop the business, right? To, to, to seize in on new opportunities. They're very much in a protective mode and that can kind of create a little bit of a friction between a, maybe some younger partners who are wanting like, man, we've got to grow, we've got to develop, we've got to change, we've got to pivot. Um, and somebody else is like, no, let's just, let's hunker in the bunker and let's just, you know, ride this out. I don't want to do anything that could, you know, mess with my net worth. And in the same, in the, the similar context, I should say, it, you can have staff, uh, employees that are great. They're superstars. They're maybe that like an A player. They've built a lifetime of knowledge. And you're talking now about helping move them maybe into a B player role because you're getting them to transform and evolve and to take on new, new knowledge or to do something different. How do you navigate that for what maybe like a person on either one of those spectrums that is like, I, I kind of don't want to move. I, uh, I, I kind of don't want to try something new. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going to stay where I'm at. I don't I, I don't look at these new oppor- I don't look at these things as opportunities. I look at them as a threat, either as a business owner or as an employee. We try and hire for people that um, look for opportunities, right? I mean, just think about the everything about the organization kind of mm-hmm. lends to that. And the challenge we have as an organization we've had in life is we too often look at opportunities and we move too fast. I have a good friend who was a competitor and he used to say they loved watching us move first, make all the mistakes, spend all the money, then follow us and print cash. 
right? So, so one of the things in my discipline around that is try is having learned from him mm-hmm. and trying not to, you know, just look at everything as an opportunity or. Um, and by the way, some of the reasons we move for opportunities is we were afraid of the risks of not moving mm-hmm. fast enough, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there, there's a balance there. I try and learn from the people that think of everything as risk and are trying to hunker in the bunker, as, as, as you said. And I try and really take the time to process whether or not that risk is real and what level of hunkering we need to do to protect some of our assets. Mm-hmm. But I think people that hunker in the bunker, um, hunkering in the bunker leads to death, whether of a company, they call them zombie companies or this or that. Um, I had an interesting experience. So I'm the ALO for the Palm Beach chapter. And I ran this program, which uh, which you're aware of, where I brought in Ryan Buell, Boris, David King, Rich Phillips. Um, and what was amazing to me was we had on 150, 160 attendees, and only 20 of them were from my chapter, which was had paid a fixed amount for the event. And of that 20, the majority of them were people that I had encouraged. They were in my form or something like mm-hmm. that. And I'm like, why don't people want to come? And it's like, well, you're bringing in all these business people. Most of us are, you know, we've got teams that are doing that. We've got this. There's nothing more. We want to learn more about, you know, other other pieces of the business. And what I'm trying to do is is uh, is is change that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to encourage the chapter to have more of a growth mindset. And right? As opposed to a fixed mindset. Do you think that was because of their age? Was it an age thing? They were like at a different stage of their career where they had hired CEOs or? It, it was somewhat because of their, you know, a former mate of mine who I love dearly said to me, I'm more interested in learning about wine now than I am about making my business better at this stage mm-hmm. of my life. Okay. Um, and I think that's great, but I think that to me that leads to, you know, I think that's a little bit of a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. If you look at the YPO Gold program and things along those lines, the the people that attend that program and the people that attend Harvard tend to want to keep learning and evolving, right? Mm -hmm. And they see that and they get the relationships. And too many of us develop that fixed mindset, that risk-averse mindset. We're trying to protect what it is. And I don't, I think that leads to an unhappy, you know, unhappiness later in life. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it leads to zombie, it just, it doesn't lead to healthy things. I mean, you read Strength to Strength. Strength to strength. I don't know if I read uh, the book. Arthur Brooks book. Oh yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. That book was great, um, and I'm doing the, cl- the the program that Basel put together with Arthur Brooks. But I think you know another book that I just started reading um, is Wisdom at Work, which is great because it really talks about you know continuing to evolve as human beings, continuing to have a growth mindset, and what's that growth mindset look like? And what I try and do is learn from people that have a fixed mindset or are looking to protect and hunker down. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, really encourage and reward people that are looking more from a growth mindset. I mean, look at the thing we just did in our company where we're going to be compensating and gamifying the fact of look at new ways we could be using chat. And it's got older people that may be in a more or more tenured people, if I'm being socially correct, in the organization, working with some less tenured people. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a healthy competition there. Well, I'm not going to let that guy, that person you be me. I, I want to think, and it inspires them. And I think you need to create inspiration. One of the reasons for allow if you create an environment, and we did this at HBS, we created in an environment. Pretty much everybody was afraid, was willing to raise something all the way up to the top. 
And you said you don't like the word safe space, and I get that. But it was a safe environment where people were not afraid of the repercussions of raising something. The repercussions were for violating the core values of the organization, Mm -hmm. which existed to make the environment healthier for everybody. Right. But other than that, the road was wide open and you could say or do whatever you wanted, especially and throw it out there to stick. And I think that's the same thing. Uh, I think it's the same thing, you know, in in business. business. Did did I answer your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you do, would you do me a big favor? Would you just at some point before we finish and we're getting close to wrapping up, um, say, I want to double click on that. Because you haven't said it once, and I was so <laughs> looking forward to it. Okay. And I, I, I want to start using that phrase because okay. that, along with Orin's chewing on glass, um, double click on that, have yes. become two of my I want to build into. Okay. And for those of you listening and have never seen Bob bright red, uh, he is bright red now and yeah. laughing, and it is a beautiful yes. thing. He he just looks amazing. Well, I would like to I would like to double click on why you found that phrase is so uh, so insightful or so funny <laughs> it's, 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 it's not funny it's actually a great way of saying i want to expand on that and mm-hmm. often i find it hard like my kids make fun of my phrases mm-hmm. like um another way to look at that might be or that like all these things are in my experience you know my my son said i tried to use that with a friend of mine at school and he said so what you're really doing is not sharing your experience you're telling me what you think i should do mm-hmm. right and i think you're double to me double i want to double click on that was a very unassuming way of saying let's expand on that or mm-hmm. i want to expand on that and a safe way of doing so so i love picking up these phrases cuz too many of my phrases um at this point in my life can come across as judgmental when they're not mm-hmm. meant to be or defensive and phrases that and by the way it's another place chatgpt is great I, 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 I you know i said how would you express this or how would you ask this question um, I do that with my kids now before I'm going to say something to them. And it takes all of the emotion out of it and history out of it. And it's really helped me to think about how I might phrase her things in a way that improves. So that, that, that is why I've enjoyed it so much oh, and adopted it into my life. Oh, fantastic. Um, it, one of the few uh, things that I've been able to maybe uh, share with you, I feel like uh, it's a, it's been a one-way street. I, I learned so much from you and I'm constantly taking notes. And so if there's anything that I've been able to do to, to impart a little something and add value to you, it, it brings a smile to my face. So thank you for, for sharing that. But yeah, I, I've I, learned I, so much from your podcast. I mean, I've taken notes on every single one of them. And the, uh, in most cases, it's people that I've known for years mm-hmm. and I took something new. Uh, I think it was Grant said something about uh, freedom of speech isn't free unless you disagree with it. It was something along mm-hmm. those lines, yeah. which I just thought was utterly brilliant and something that I adopted. Warren had so many wonderful things. Richie, Jess, um, Brett. Um, I really just enjoyed Dean's uh, and, you know, working with every single one of them. Mm-hmm. I've learned something from. So thank you for the time and passion you put into this. Yeah. 
I've, I've just been thoroughly enjoying it. And uh, I, I've told multiple people, I said, if, if I, it was an audience of one and it was just me, it, I would consider it worthwhile because I get to spend time with my friends and I'm learning. I mean, I, I love sitting back and reviewing the show notes and I've learned uh, something, many things from each and every one of those those dialogues. And so it's, it's something, it's my passion project. I really, really enjoy it. Well, one of the things that I have really enjoyed is asking this particular question of all of our guests recently. We live in a uh, a, a world that there's a, a lot of confusion. There's a you know, it's hard to navigate. Maybe in the economy, and there's you know various conflicts. Uh, there's also uh, domestically there's strife and disagreement. And I really appreciate hearing different leaders give their particular answer on this on this question but if the president of the united states asked you adam to give a state of the union address to the american people and he said all right you can share whatever you want from the heart you know motivate them encourage them uh inspire them but what what words would you use what would you say do you have a message for the american people for today I've enjoyed you asking this question because most people haven't listened to as many of your podcasts and were unprepared. And I really enjoyed when you asked Mark and he said, do you want me to answer as a Canadian yes. or as as if I was an American? You asked him to give both. Um, so, so I've had the opportunity to prepare for this question. Oh, look at you. I love <laughs> that, it. That, that, being, that being said, and it was it, it, that was one of the ones that made me the most nervous. So, you know, I think you brought it up earlier, right? I think the biggest challenge we have as an organization is uh, as, as a country mm-hmm. and globally, but especially in the U.S., is the echo chambers that we each live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if I had the opportunity to give a State of the Union, it would be to encourage, heck, if I could make it a law, that everybody had to spend time hearing and listening to those, those different opinions. My State of the Union message would be to change the channel listen to a different podcast, listen to some different pieces. The other thing I think which we have, which Michael Porter gets into dramatically, is I would be encouraging Congress, there would probably be a losing battle, to uh, get rid of our primary, the way our primary system of uh, first past the poll to to, um, rank choice. Mm Voting because I think our primary system and I've, uh, we David King did a whole presentation on this, um, which I think I might have shared with you guys, um, where how our system basically leads to there ne- it being impossible for a third party to ever get traction, and our policies leading more towards the extremes. Because to your point and mine, eighty percent of the people out there are menches and really just want to get along. And there's certain core things, but those 80% don't vote in our primaries. And because of the way our system works, everybody's encouraged to have to cater to the extremes. And that's, that's a real issue. So I think my, the, the two things that I would put in there would be a, a plea to the people to expand their horizons and a plea to our, to our Congress to change our voting system in a way that may not cater to the sh- their short-term needs, but in the long-term cater will lead to a stronger, you know, it's like a business decision. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to sacrifice short-term profits for yeah. long-term growth and a better overall company. And we're not doing that. So that was my answer. That's your answer. It's a phenomenal answer. And I, I, I it, 
gives us some things to think about and ponder about, and maybe we can start a movement here in the United States uh, with some needed changes. But one thing that I learned in our program is that changes in any organization start with the leader, uh, creating an environment where uh, people can learn, people can grow, people can think, see the world through a new lens. And Adam, I got to watch you develop something very, very special, take an already prestigious, um, highly sought after program and turn it into something even better. And you were the chief architect of bringing an incredibly diverse group of CEOs and presidents from around the world, giving them the opportunity to, to live and work together, uh, travel together throughout the year, um, study, and uh, in a safe place, to use that term, where, pe- where people could I, exchange uh, differing sets of opinions and beliefs and learn and grow. And it was a really radical and uh, important time in my life. Uh, I, you, I remember when you offered me an opportunity to come on board in a leadership position with you, and you said, Bob, um, this it will change your experience going forward. It's going to be a lot of work. Uh, you'll actually maybe lose a little bit of the classroom experience because there'll be times you have to get pulled out and do things like uh, do administrative things, but you're going to end up uh, growing in your relationships and it's going to be worthwhile if you accept this position. And your words were a hundred percent true. My time with you and my time with YPO and HBS has radically changed my life for the better. And so for that, I just want to say thank you. And I also want to say thank you for um, every single member of our community. You've used that word multiple times now. Uh, You developed a community and developed a family. And every single person in our community has said that the HBS program that we've participated in for many, many years was life-changing. And uh, so on behalf of all of our classmates, on behalf of all of our friends and peers, I just want to say how much we love and respect you. And um, you have impacted us and the world because of the time and the efforts that you put into our program. So thank you. Well, thank you, Bob. And yeah, all, 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 you know, all I did was was uh, was invite and recognize some really great people uh, who then who then made it happen, and that includes you. And I know how much you and Richie and Basel and Sandy and Brett and Mark. And uh, I think I mentioned, but all of you guys sacrifice and everybody that was in a group leader, because when you step into leadership at a program like that, um, it really becomes less, even less about you and more about everybody else. And you guys gained some experience, but you also missed out on uh, you guys sacrificed selflessly to make that program a better community, a better experience for 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 hundreds of people. Um, and those hundreds of people went back and took that um, and they changed their businesses, their communities, and their families because of it. So the impact that you guys had um, globally was just incredible. So thank you. Well, I love you, brother. And I can't thank you enough for taking time to be on this podcast today. I'm sure we're going to be inviting you back and there's going to be more developments and more exciting things that you're doing with your business and leadership roles you have with YPO and new and exciting things that you're doing. So we'll want to stay in touch and continue to learn from you. Thank you for being a great leader and a lifelong learner, an incredible example of a, a business uh, individual who's striving to have impact in the world. I greatly appreciate you, my friend.
thank you, Bob, and thank you for doing this. I, I've really enjoyed listening to all the interviews and hope you keep doing it. Will do. Have a great, have a nice day. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Adam Eisman, for taking time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite pods. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That's always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we look forward to being back with you again next week.